Why don't you open your Bible, if you have it, to Luke chapter 15, and also, if you like to follow along, I have a handout that I provide for you each week. I try to provide one for you each week that kind of helps us follow along. If you're like me, I need something to keep my hands busy, especially if the pastor would ever get his sermons wound down, might be able to move through quicker, but... I need something to be able to help track some things. So we've been working through uh, parable Luke 15. Luke 15, the the third uh, in that series of parables is called, or has been dubbed, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, That's that's probably one of Jesus' most famous parables. Uh, Jesus gave about 60 parables during his ministry that we know of, that we have recorded in the Gospels. In the parable of the prodigal son, which is Luke 15, verse 11 to 32, it's the longest of all the parables. And I know it may feel like we've been in this for quite some time, but there's just so much stuff to, to be able to dig out of, dig, dig out of this parable. So I hope that you're learning some things. If you haven't had the ability to be here for the series, I just got to encourage you, go back, listen to the CDs. We have CDs, by the way, out on the, the communication center. It's that big thing that's stuck right in the middle when you walk in. You can't miss it. There's, um, there's CDs there. If, uh, you don't, or if you're not the CD type of person that you want the downloads, you can go onto our website, praisepoint.net. I think it's under audio or something along those lines. It has the videos. It has the audio. You can download it, listen to it. I just got to encourage that because there's just so much to mine out of this. Um, the word prodigal itself means excessive, um, to a certain degree, some people have even defined prodigal as being wasteful, luxurious, um, uh, lavish. All those kind of synonyms have been used to define the word prodigal. And, and, and we call it the prodigal son. And it's really not about just one son. It's really about these three different main characters. You have the father, uh, you have the younger brother, and the older brother. But this younger brother, as you know, goes off to a foreign land. He leaves Israel, and he goes to a foreign land, which violates all kinds of mosaic laws and, and expected traditions and customs of the time. And, and he lives excessively. And just even how he got there was, was a violation of the fifth commandment, which was to honor your father and mother. And so we've got all of these things going on, and, and the, the audience would have um, perceived this this young lad to be the vilest person that you could imagine. So in your mind, imagine the vilest person that you could imagine, and this is exactly the, the picture, the portrait that Jesus has been painting about this young person. It's kind of fascinating when you think about the word prodigal, lavish, excessive, uh, maybe even wasteful. If you think about the product, the son, the younger brother, we could define him like that. But if you've been here for the series, you've also hopefully been learning how the, the uh, father has brought so much shame upon himself by doing the things that he has done. And he's done it out of a heart of excessive love and excessive joy. And so it's kind of fascinating. If you want to twist to the story to think about this, this isn't just a story about a prodigal son who's wasteful or who's lavish. This is a story about a prodigal father. 
Now, you might say, well, wait, wait, what do you mean? Think of how much love and how much grace and how much mercy he has just lavished excessively upon his younger son up to the point in the story where we've been studying up to last week. I mean, from the Pharisees and scribes' viewpoint, and remember, these are the main hearers of this parable, from their viewpoint, they would say, what a waste. This boy has absolutely nothing that he's, he's worthy of, and here you are being so good to him. What a, what a waste of mercy. What a waste of grace. And I hope that you're picking up by now that this is a picture of us. This is a picture of how much God lavishes his grace and his love and his mercy upon us when from every real viewpoint, outsiders should be looking at us and saying, what a waste of love, what a waste of mercy, because you and I are undeserving sinners, and the only thing that saves us is the amazing, extravagant, lavish grace of God. Not one of us is worthy or deserving of the grace which we have received. I think when we look at it in that context, it's not just about a prodigal son, it's about a prodigal father who's excessive and loving. And I'm, I'm hoping that we're catching these things. I'm hoping that you can see that we Christians, and I'm talking about true Christians, those of us who've truly repented of our sins and that we turn towards God for our only hope, that we are prodigals. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Not one of us is deserving of the grace and the love and the kindness that's been heaped upon us from our Father in heaven. When we come to the end of ourselves, we see uh, a a God uh, who loves us, who has, in while we were still sinners, sent Christ, his only begotten son, to die for us so that we might be reunited and live with him for all eternity, and he has reinstated us and made us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. I hope that you're getting these pictures. The whole parable is pregnant with meaning. So, um, so let's go ahead and let's dive right back into that parable. If you have your Bible with you, let me encourage you to read right from your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, uh, I have it up here on the screen, but I just really got to encourage you, be in your own Bible. It's always good to make notes there, and I, I need to apologize ahead of time this morning. I've got a little bit of a voice issue kind of going on, and so if I uh, drink some water in front of you, I'm not intending to offend. Verse <clears throat> 11 of Luke chapter 15 is where we pick up this third story, this third parable of Jesus teaching to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. That would be outside of Israel. There he squandered his property and reckless living. We've already talked about in this series how he brought so much disgrace and dishonor upon his father. The fact that his father um, conceded into this is just beyond the imagination, the comprehension of the hearers and the customs of Jesus's time. We talked about what should have happened according to Mosaic law just by the fact that this young lad even made this request. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, the young lad, When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to 
be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. I'm going to pause there because we've talked about in the series how the Greek word for hired, which has been translated as hired, in fact, some translations don't even use the word hired, and I think that those are better translations of the Greek because in the Greek it literally means he glued himself to a citizen. It's not like he kind of identified that he was in need, and so he thought, well, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. I'm going to go and I'm going to earn my own living, and I'm going to make my own way. I'm finally making a change. That's not what he did. He became a beggar, and so he goes and he tries to attach himself to one of the citizens of that country. That would be a Roman citizen, by the way. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods. These are carob pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything, including the man who he was supposedly trying to be hired out to. He thought, you know, this is a wealthy guy for him to be able to have a herd of swine during a severe famine and for him to be able to feed them even carapods during those times. So this is a man of means. And he thought, you know, if I scratch his back, he'll scratch my back. He'll take care of me. And what we see in the text is he didn't take care of him. No one took care of him. No one gave him a single thing. Even the guy who sent him into the field. Probably the reason that he even sent him into the field is he wanted to get rid of him. Get get away. Go out with the pigs. And so when he came to himself in verse 17, he said, How many of my father's hired servants? Remember, these are not regular hired employees. They're not getting a 401k. They're not getting benefit health benefits. They're not getting all the good wages and all these good things. And again, in the Greek, which helps us to better understand this story, in the Greek, it tells us that this is a person who is just a daily hired servant. So uh, you might think of the Great Depression where one day somebody would go out and they would hire themselves out to paint and the next day they may not have any work at all. This is the kind of hired servants, a day wage servants that he's talking about. He's saying, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. My sins are as high as heaven, and I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's an understatement. Treat me as one of your hired servants, your day slaves, or your day workers. And so he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion. We talked about last week how um, this word in the Greek, he felt, um, we have it translated as three words in the English. He felt compassion. That's all one word in the Greek. It's talking about he had such a deep gut feeling that he just ached from the inside of his his bowels, uh, is, is how they would talk about it in the ancient world. He ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your slave. He's been rehearsing this speech for many, many miles as he's walking home barefooted, stinking like pigs, and just not even a shadow of what he formerly was. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. 
and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in, the older brother, of course. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. And that's why we've been calling this whole series and lost and found and singing about this amazing, extravagant grace and undeserving love that you and I receive. Hey, would, would you take a minute with me and let's just pray that God would open our eyes and our hearts this morning, that we would truly see the lessons that Jesus wants us to hear and see and sense this morning as we mine the text. Father, we only begin to see how much you love us here. Our minds can't begin to fully comprehend the depth and the riches of your love. We see how extravagantly you lavished your grace upon us through this parable. And I pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, that we may see, that we may hear the true things that come directly from your throne room. Father, I thank you for your holy word and how you've preserved it through eons. And I thank you how you have preserved it so it might be read here this morning, that we might hear it and that our hearts might be changed because of it. Father, change our hearts, change our minds, help us to repent, help us to come to the end of ourselves that we might see the beginning of you and that we might receive all good and perfect things, that we might be restored and that we might know you because of you first loving us. So Father, I pray these things and I ask them in the name of Christ Jesus this morning. Amen. I'm going to mute it this time. Sorry about that. Um, it'll, it'll be tough today. Um, as much as I really, I, I have this inward desire, like I want to move forward faster than what we have been moving forward, but there's just so much in the text that I'm afraid that even, in, even though I may go long, we don't go long enough to be able to, to take the time to mine all these truths, so it'll be tough today to move uh, beyond two short verses because Jesus has packed so much meaning into two small verses that we could spend really an enormous amount of time detailing so many of Jesus's lessons. And then what I'd really love to do is connect those lessons to all kinds of other places in the scriptures so that we can better see exactly what Jesus is trying to paint a picture of here. 
but let's just suffice it to say that the wayward son returns to his father. Remember, we find it fascinating. We talked about how um, it's fascinating at the beginning of the parable, this this uh, younger brother, this younger son, he, he's really antagonistic towards his father. In fact, really what he says to his father is, I wish you were dead because I really want your money, and the only thing standing between me and that money is you being alive, so go ahead and give me my money now. That's kind of what he's saying in essence, and it's fascinating how the character and the nature, how the father conducted himself throughout that whole ordeal is ended up being what the prodigal son ends up remembering when he comes to the end of himself. He ends up remembering the love and the character of the Father. And so that's what ends up drawing him home. And by the way, that's the same thing that still draws us to God today. When God begins to allow us to come to the end of ourselves, that we see nothing else, but we see God's extravagant love for us. We see kind of the magnitude of our own sin. We, we begin to see God has supernaturally pulled back the curtains to where we begin to see how vile that we truly are, how repugnant that we truly are before a holy God. That's when we come to the end of ourselves and we turn to God and it's almost a deep sense, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, uh, a mourning. And so he returns to his father, his homeland, his family. The community is prepared to reject him. By the way, that's why the father runs to him is before he even gets to the edge of the village because the, the community is going to completely reject him. As we'll see th- this morning, they've already had this young man's funeral according to Jewish traditions and Jewish customs. He is dead to the community. He's dead to the family. He's dead to the father. And so the father, before any kind of vile rejection can come upon him, he runs to him and he says, I forgive you, before the young lad even really can get the words out of his mouth to protect him from humiliation and disgrace. And in doing so, as we saw last week, the father honors him. The father gives him full family authority and also reinstates him. That's what you see happening with bringing the best robe. The best robe would have been the father's robe, the patriarch's robe, and it's put upon him. It shows honor upon him. And another thing that you see is you see him getting a ring. That's a signet ring. We talked about the, the significance of that ring last week. It gives him full family authority to conduct family business. It's reinstating him to the full value and to the full privilege of being a family member. And and then what they do is they put shoes on his feet. This man was barefooted because that's that's the place that he had, had been to. And so they put sandals on his feet, which is, by the way, showing him you're a member of our family. It's reinstating him to all of these amazing places. And that's exactly what you and I should be seeing, what God does for us when we repent and when we return to him. So if that isn't enough, if that isn't enough grace, look at what happens next. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. Now listen, there isn't really a theological connection here, but you should be able to know and see a, a painting clearly within Scripture that there can be no remission of sins without the shedding of blood according to the Scriptures. If Jesus did not shed his blood, you and I could not be saved. And so when I even read about the fattened calf, I, my radar immediately went up about thinking about the uh, issue of 
of uh, a blood offering, some kind of sacrifice. That's not what's happening here, but it's just a fascinating picture that at the same time that Christ needed to die for us in order for us to be reconciled to the Father. These two small verses, 23 and 24, are just amazingly pregnant with meaning. And so I, I got to take some time this morning to take you to two small verses and take some time to flesh out what's happening here. So a fattened calf would have provided for an enormous meal. Uh, enormous meal. So according to, com- according to commentators... It would easily be reasonable to assume, and this is where you can pick this up in your handout, that a fattened calf would feed at least 200 people. Now, why is that significant? I want you to follow with me what has happened. This is why we've taken time to study three parables of Luke chapter 15. Remember, the center of uh, verse of, of the gospel of Luke is Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? And then we get into Luke 15, and we find all, all these different things that are lost. The first thing that was lost was what? A lost sheep. And a shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep. What does he do when he finds those lost sheep? He celebrates, right? The next parable is about a lost coin. Now, we don't know exactly the dynamics of what's happening there, but to this woman, this coin was pretty valuable. In fact, it was worth about a day's wage. And so when she finds that coin, what does she do? She calls together all of her friends, and she celebrates. Now, guess what's happening here? Following in the same pattern, when this lost son is found, guess what happens? He doesn't just call together a few friends. You know what he does? He calls together the whole community. Let me just kind of make sense. Who's going to be invited to this celebration? You have the family. You have the immediate family. They would have been invited to the celebration. By the way, I find it fascinating that the young lad, does the older brother, he doesn't find out about this until he's coming in from the field. By the way, he is not going to be a servant, an actual worker in the field. He's going to be kind of a foreman, so to speak, because he's the son of a, of a wealthy nobleman. So he's coming in from the field, and it's fascinating. I wonder what it says about family dynamics that the father didn't send somebody, uh, a servant, out to the oldest brother saying, hey, you got to get in here as quickly as you can. Your brother's here. He probably knew exactly what he would think about his brother coming home. Servants would have been invited. They would have helped serve. They would have helped take care of the actual administration or the serving of the meal, but they also would have been partakers of the meal, and that's just very cultural customs that takes place during Jesus' time. And I want to throw out a third one. You might have to ask, well, tell me about how do you arrive at this conclusion? The entire town would have been invited. The entire town would have been invited. This guy is throwing a lavish party. Do you get it here? I mean, he's throwing a big party. He's killing the fattened calf. Hundreds of people, and back then villages weren't, weren't very large. I mean, they would have been the size of Wilshire here, or even 
a little bit smaller. So you might ask the question, which is a very fair question, how can you assume, how can you make that kind of a statement that the entire town would have been invited? It's not stated directly in the text. Well, let me kind of lead you to that same conclusion by the evidence that we clearly have <clears throat> within the culture and within the text. So this follows a pattern of what is taking place in the past two parables. You have the shepherd with the lost sheep. He invites his friends when he, comes, when he gets home and he, he's found his sheep. You have the, the woman with the lost coin. She invites friends over and she celebrates with him. Now, how much more would a son be worth than a sheep or a coin? Do you get the pattern that Jesus is illustrating here? Jesus is illustrating here that he is, he's wanting everyone to know that this son of mine, though he was dead in his life, I'm accepting him back. In order for him to culturally be accepted among the entire community, the father had to be extravagant and let everybody know that this son of mine is completely, fully redeemed before me. And anybody who's willing to come from the village, I want you to come, and I want you to see how much I love him. I want you to see how much I am reinstating him. I want you to know that even though that all those things that he did were vile and horrible and deserve rejection, I'm accepting him back. And he is my son. As parents, you know, it's one of those things that I'm learning more and more, that even though that our kiddos, and my kiddos aren't very old, as you know, but... Even the things that they do that are disobedient, I still love them, and I still love them deeply. And I couldn't imagine my kiddos doing anything that would ever stop me from loving them. I would imagine that this father had the same attitude, that even how horrible and how vile of a thing that his youngest son did, he still continued to love him. And in fact, that's what we see here as this parable has progressed, the father calls together his entire family, his entire friends, and he intends to feed hundreds of people. So he calls together the whole village. Because he says right here, this son of mine was what? Dead and is now alive. He was dead and is now alive. I want you to remember a couple things. The three parables in Luke 15 are all about God rejoicing over repentance. And consequently, what happens with repentance? Repentance leads to what? It leads to life, and not just life here in this life, but life eternal. Genuine repentance takes us to a place to where all of heaven is rejoicing over a person coming to Christ and over a person turning their life over. Luke 15, 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Imagine that, that God's love is so extra extravagant that I think a lot of us, we kind of get a righteous indignation or maybe a prideful righteousness to where we're like, you know, I can't believe that person, or I don't think that person would be re redeemable. Or, 
isn't that the same attitude that the Pharisees and the scribes had? And that's even the reason why Jesus was telling this parable to the Pharisees and scribes. He says twice, by the way, that my son is dead and is alive again. For years, I struggled to understand that statement. I mean, doesn't it just kind of seem strange? I mean, he mentions it twice, so obviously it was in his mind, it was in his attitude, it was in his way of thinking that his son was dead and is now alive again. And so I want to make some sense of that, and to do that, we've got to close a, a time gap and a cultural gap. So to understand this, in Jesus' culture, in that time, in when a child had abandoned their family and their home, their community, when they had rejected them and, and violently rejected them in the way that this younger brother did, the family would gather together and they would literally have a funeral for the child. I, I mean, it's not stated in here, but remember, Jesus is telling this story to, to a culture that would have completely understood all of the nuances of what was happening. And so they completely would have understood the father's attitude and the father's statement about he was dead and he's alive. He was dead and he was alive. In verse 24, also in verse 32, he makes that statement. For us, we're thousands of years removed, we're culturally removed, and all these different things it doesn't make as much sense to us until we close this gap. In a very real sense, the community, the family, Everybody who knew this younger brother, they considered him dead in a, in a very real sense. He was dead to them, dead. And so him coming back is like a corpse coming back, and it just goes against the grain of everything that would have been cultural at that time. Because of his reckless rebellion, his abandonment, he was counted as dead to the community. He was counted as dead to the family. He was counted as dead to the servants. So listen, in light of this, when the father says the son was dead and now is alive, he's not only making a statement about his return. Some people will, will dismiss this to only mean, oh, this is, he's gone away and now he's come back. No, 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 no. This is not just a statement about him coming back. This is now a statement about his status. His status within the family, his status within the community, his status with, among the servants, his status among his brother, his status with his father. This is a statement of he was truly dead, and now he is completely made alive. And I don't want you to miss the picture here, that according to Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, you and I are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we are a dead man walking. We are a corpse walking around. Even though that, you know, our heart is still beating. We're dead in our sins and trespasses until what? Christ comes in and makes us alive. Renews us and makes us new. Ephesians 2 and Colossians chapter 3 make those same statements. In making us alive, here's what happens. We're immediately restored to every blessing, every family right, and God graciously gives us those things freely just because he loves us. Now that's 
That's that amazing grace that we sing about. That, that is, by the way, why we should have great extravagant joy because of how much God loves us. What a picture, right? What a, what a great picture of God's love for us. You and I are far from God. We've done our own thing. We've done it our own way. You know, like that song, I did it my way. <laughs> Until we return and start doing things, what? God's way. That's why this book that we call the Bible is so incredibly vital for us to know, for us to study, for us to love, because it's God's ways for us. It's his plans for us. It's his purposes for us. What ends up happening is he restores us. He renews us. We find our peace. We don't find our peace in ourselves. We don't find renewal in ourselves. We don't find forgiveness in ourselves. We don't find strength in ourselves. Where do we find that? All in one person, Jesus Christ. That's why it's so crucial that you and I get the picture that Jesus is painting. We're truly dead. And you know what happens? Makes us alive. That leads me to a couple thoughts, a couple conclusions. Listen, you might be getting some other thoughts. There's some different conclusions, but here's a couple things that I thought of. You got to come to a place in your life where you're dead to yourself and you're ready to be crucified with Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You won't find an end to your pain, your helplessness. You won't find an end to the things that are going on in your life until you come to the end of yourself and that you're ready to be crucified with Christ. You won't find hope. You won't find peace. You won't find any of that in yourself. That's what the prodigal son, that's what the younger brother finally got. It was that two-by-four method. God hit him, and he got it. That I remember my father's love. It's not until you turn back to Christ that you'll begin to understand those things. So many folks don't have this idea down. And, and I think this is very American of us. We want all the benefits. We want all the good things, but we want it our way. We want, to, we want it the way that we want it, not what God wants it or the way that God wants it. We, we want it all the wonderful things in this world, but we don't want to pay the price of following Christ. Jesus said, listen, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. You need to do it his way, not my way. In order to do that, here's what we need to do. Stay off of the king's seat. I wanted to say stay off the throne, and then I was afraid of all the connotations that could go with that. And I thought, it's better to say stay off the king's seat. You, you know, you know there's, there's things that go on in our lives that we want to be the center of our lives, don't we? 
We want everything in this world to feed us. We think that we're the center of the universe, and that's exactly the attitude that the prodigal son had, wasn't it? He didn't care who it hurt. He didn't care by what means he accomplished it. He wanted to do what he wanted the way that he wanted it, and nobody else mattered. Again, that's a very American way of doing things, but the reality of it is, is what the scriptures tell us, what God's truth tells us, is that we don't deserve to be on the king's seat. Because there's only one person who can be king and lord in your life. It can't be you and God. It has to be God alone. The other choices, they're not so good. How do you stay humble? You stay humble in Christ at all times. You need to remember your position before an almighty saving God. You need to remember that we're undeservingly blessed. Remember that genuine repentance uh, comes with a clear picture of our circumstances. What are our circumstances? Well, we're sinful people. And we are always going to continue to make bad choices until Christ gets a hold of us. And even then, we can still choose to reject Christ. Last thing is, instead of ending on such a sour note, let me encourage you. Never forget the joy that your redemption brings to God. I'm only beginning to discover the happiness and the joy that comes to me as a parent when my children are obedient. It kind of makes you have a stronger spine, sit up, sit up a little bit stronger or straighter, you know, and just kind of brings you joy because you know that, you, that, that the instructions you're giving your kiddos are for their benefit. It's for their, their blessing. And in our humility, we stand in all of the love and amazing grace that, the, that God has lavished down upon us. Listen, if prodigal means lavish, extreme, unnecessarily over the top, then we serve a prodigal father, a prodigal heavenly father who has given lavish grace and mercy upon us amid our own problems. This is a story of a father who went out of his way and seemingly out of his mind to show love and grace and undeserving mercy to a foolish young man. I'm so thankful that God is that extreme, that God is that lavish, because if it weren't for that kind of grace, you and I'd still be wallowing with the pigs. We'd be helpless and hopeless, but it, if it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ, what a great, amazing father we serve. Two simple verses in 40-some minutes. Can you imagine that? <laughs> These verses are so much about you and me. And I hope, I hope that you and, you and I kind of just maul over those things, ruminate over the lessons that God is trying to teach us here in this story.